good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. Now, I'm quite aware of what goes on in January. It's uh, something that people adopt as a dry month after all the celebrations. Oh, oh, they do? They do. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, they, and there are all kinds of has tips a, on how you can avoid a, alcohol for the whole month. Hasn't been a dry month around here. <laughs> no way. So anyhow, but so we're going to be talking about booze. There you go. So, yeah. so you can listen to it even if you can't sample it. Right. So we're going to start off with, um, we just met him, Jim Lagren, and uh, he was a good interview, and his book was very useful, 50 Ways to Love Wine More, if that's a possibility. Huh? Well, we, we do, but, but, <laughs> Jim, but Jim certainly helped, and he'll help you too, so listen up. Jim Lagren, what, whatever possessed you to write yet another wine book? <laughs> well, I really wanted to speak to those folks who have ever been cold-shouldered by the wine industry, made to feel dumb or intimidated or made to understand there's some secret to truly enjoying wine that they apparently just don't understand. So I have been an advocate for people of all stripes uh, to enjoy wine, to accept wine as a, a beverage of great pleasure on their own terms and to not be forced into feeling inferior or stupid because they don't understand someone else's terms or someone else's taste. Yeah, it's really a way of reaching out to people and saying, you know, what you like is wonderful. Uh, if you want to learn more, that's wonderful. If you're content with where you are, that's wonderful too. You know, the, the, um, this is such a common problem. Um, I won the, the, probably the biggest writing award I've, I've ever won with a um, Q&A on, on wine and, and interacting with the psalm. And, and that shows, I think, Q&As didn't usually get prizes. And, um, right. Yeah, and, and this one, it was, it was up against uh, New York Magazine and everything, and it got a prize. Because that's because people needed it. You know, people get beat up by psalms. Well, the industry itself has has kind of reinforced that. Uh, I guess people feel that if information is valuable, then I'll just keep all mine and let you know that you don't know it, uh, <laughs> which, which is, is really very unfortunate. I mean, wine has a magnificent history that's as long as human existence almost. And it's been a seminal part of the human experience, whether you're talking about uh, religion or art or uh, just personal pleasure for for literally millennia, and to suddenly attribute it with these uh, uh, <clears throat> exclusionary characteristics really does wine and does all of us a disservice. Right, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I did. I did think it was interesting that you cho- chose to begin the book <laughs> with 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 sabering <laughs> sparkling wine. And uh, I, 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 I guess you have to start somewhere, so you might as well. Huh? Well, Peter gave, and somebody gave Peter as a birthday present one year a saber. Uh, yeah, I have and, one, and I won't let him use it. <laughs> 
you know, I, that, that's very interesting that you bring that up. I, I really began there for two reasons. One is that it's just a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easier than people realize. And when you do it, it's you, you just puts a smile on your face and on the face of everyone who's with you. So it's really a, a crowd pleaser. It's a, it's a good time, and wine should be a good time. And secondly, I think it kind of pops the balloon a bit. Uh, a friend of mine who is a psalm uh, read the first chapter, and he said, oh, man, what are you going to do, give away all our secrets? <laughs> so, so when I heard that, I figured I was on the right track. You, you, well, I want to see you do it with a butter knife. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, have done it often with a butter knife, yeah, actually. Really. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. You, you, I yep. think it's, you, all, it's all in the technique. Yeah, Again, it's, it's not. Uh, I know. It, it's not the size of the blade. It's how you use it. it yeah. And it's it's the it's the, it's that old so so again. How do you how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The answer is practice, practice, practice. Right. <laughs> and and, and, that, and that's how you become good at sabering champagne. I, I, yes, I, a little practice goes a long way. I do I do lend mine out. But, but, but I'll I have keep not, that in mind. Next time I'm in Pittsburgh, I may take you up. Well, I, it's, it's it's a grand object. There's no there's no question about it. I mean, some, somebody spent a lot of money being being ostentatious. <laughs> Needless to say, this is one of our few friends who's a Trump supporter. Oops, oops. Maybe you're maybe you're a Trump maybe you're a Trump supporter too. I don't know. Anyhow, I did I did like. You know? Did you say? What the name of the book was? No, no, I didn't. Let's do that one. 50 Ways to Love Wine More, Adventures in Wine Appreciation. And there there are 50 ways. There are 50 ways to to leave your lover, right? Wasn't that Paul Simon and Garfunkel? 50 Ways to Lose Your Lover? 50, 50 (laughs) 50 Years to Love Wine More. And very quickly, you get to the sommelier is your friend. Help explain that to our listeners, who many of whom I think who are, who are not wine enthusiasts are really put off by sommeliers when, in fact, if you make the sommelier your best friend, you're, you're going to get one hell of a deal. Yeah, we, we have psalms we adore, absolutely adore. I mean, really good people. Well, the majority of psalms are wonderful people, and they're very personable people. And uh, my, my perspective is this. If you're someone who's relatively new to the world of wine, or you've been drinking wine and enjoying it for a long time, but you don't really know all that much about it, and you're off to a restaurant, and uh, you're, you're in a position of choosing a bottle, why not take advantage of someone who has a vast amount of knowledge? Put them to work for you. I mean, think of them as your hired hand, if you will. And, uh, you know, it's, it's you're running the show. Don't let them run the show. Just say, look, this is the kind of thing that we generally drink and enjoy. And uh, we're kind of thinking about this from the menu. Can you make any recommendations that make sense for us? And, and why would you recommend those things? And price range. And, then, <laughs> and price range, yes. Give them a price range. Or if they bring you something that's, you know, ridiculously priced. Oh no, that's way too much. We're not looking to. You're not looking to buy the restaurant. We just wanted a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> you and, got it. Yeah. There you go. And the thing is, they do love to talk about wine, so you they can get a lot it. of education, a lot of insight, yeah. 
if you will just uh, give the psalm some direction and guidance. And, and again, look at it from the perspective that this person is working for you. Now, I, I found another very interesting chapter. Out of the 50, I mean, they're, they're, they've all got some special insights in them. I, did, I was intrigued by the, by the chapter on how, what, what wines to serve to your beer-drinking friends. Oh, that's cute, yes. Yes, yes. Well, <clears throat> my, my previous book was called The Beer Drinker's Guide to Knowing and Enjoying Fine Wine. Yeah. And so... I've, I've had a lot of experience, if you will, in, in introducing one to the other. And I think that a lot of people make a mistake. First of all, a beer drinker is probably always going to be primarily a beer drinker. You know, there's just a little different approach uh, in your palate. Uh, now, my palate, for instance, really responds to the fruit and the fruitiness and the juiciness of wine. Other people kind of respond much more to the to the grainy uh, aspect of beer, so that's fine. But there are times when I want to drink a beer, and there are times when beer drinkers want to drink a wine. But because the wine world can be intimidating, they often don't know where to begin. Now, do you do you know Marnie Old? Uh, I have heard the name. I yes, I'm aware of her. Okay, mm-hmm. she, she 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 wrote a book together with together with the owner of Dogfish <coughs> Beer. Called, I forget. Right, name. She, yeah. I think it was called. He, he says beer, he she says, says wine. Exactly. Right, and that, that was that was. I thought that was very well done. Well, I in teaching wine classes through the years, I had many people come up to me and say, "You know, my husband or my brother or my father or my sister, as the case may be, really loves beer, and I really love wine. And can you help me?" you know, get us together. So I began to refer to these people as cross-drinking couples. (laughs) And uh, I I think the big mistake is that the wine drinker assumes that the beer drinker is going to like what he or she likes. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're a wine drinker, don't ever assume the beer drinker is going to like what you like, nor should they like what you like. Right, right. So if you have a beer drinker who loves big uh, IPAs, double IPAs, imperial IPAs, and you're a fan of Pinot Grigio, giving that person a glass of Pinot Grigio is going to do nothing to them. Exactly. It's going to be like, drink, it's going to be like drinking a glass of water. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I, did, I did like your chapter on what, what goes with hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, answer, the answer, much 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 to the bad feelings on the part of Italian white wine makers, is Italian white wines. <laughs> I think you might have to be. I think you might have to be careful, depending on where you go. Well, I tell you, it, it's interesting because Italian whites go marvelously well with hot dogs. I mean, it's just they're really a wonderful match. And uh, for you know, you've got that little bit of earthiness in the wine and that savory earthiness in the hot dog, and you can throw on some strange condiments, and the wine handles those like a champ and. It's really quite interesting, and uh, I've had more than one person uh, in the wine industry tell me that's their favorite chapter in the books. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we experimented with this and um, with the Sichuan, very, very strongly spiced Sichuan food, and it was good. It was well, very good. Yeah, especially if it's a little bit frizzante. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now, yes. Yeah. Now, now we did. We did have one. We did have one lo- long discussion with the chef at a restaurant called Sixteen. Oh yeah, in which, Chicago, which is, which is right? in Chicago. It, it, he's uh, gone now. As, as to what to pair with two two of the more difficult things to pair wine with one one was artichokes yeah. and the other is asparagus. Yeah. Right. And he's this chef said he'd been fighting with his sommelier for years, and st- and still wasn't satisfied. No, it was not good. Whatever he paired with it. Yeah. So so we said sparkling white. It's, it's over. And right. We, and that's what we drank with the asparagus, and it was over. <coughs> he, t- he tasted it. He said, "I've got the right. I got the right answer." Now, I, to give you an idea, listeners, of just exactly how much information there is in this book. You talk about some on the subject of Italian whites. You found some Italian whites which had almost been come lost, like Fiano and some of those other Campania wines. You, sure. you say I think that it was almost like they were lost, and 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 now they're back, and they're really wonderful mm-hmm. wines. They're marvelous wines. Uh, I don't know if everyone is aware of this, but uh, at one time in the ancient world. Uh, Italy, particularly the southern half of Italy, was known as Inotria, uh, which means the land of the vine. And it was actually a vineyard area that was planted and uh, cultivated by the Greeks prior to the Roman civilization's rise. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like the Greeks uh, would paddle across uh, a very small body of water to get to Italy, and uh, they loved the terroir. Excuse me, the terroir over there, and so many of the uh, the the varieties that are in southern Italy are of Greek origin. Right. You know, oh, we, okay. we, we, we obviously have Greco de Tufo, which means the Greek of the tuft, and uh, Alianico, which is a derivative of the word Hellenico. Oh wow! So, so these vines. Uh, were kind of ignored in the 20th century, and actually in in many cases in the late 19th century, and they diminished. There were only a few acres of many of these vines left, and uh, in in the mid-20th century, Italians began to realize what a treasure trove of very interesting wine varieties they had, and what what a tragedy it would be if they let them go extinct. Uh-huh. And they started rediscovering these vines and recultivating them, and uh, so now, yeah, it's very easy to get a Falangia or a Greco de Tufo or or an Alianico. Whereas thirty or forty years ago, people would have looked at you as if you had two heads if you'd asked for one of those wines. Well, you know, the wine world is so complicated. I find that um, that this whole issue, I never. Peter and I have been married a long, long time. I never, ever envisioned uh, a wine-growing region in, in the U.K., in, in England. Yes. <laughs> and, but, you know, so here we, we now have um, people, actually the Tourist Information Bureau, offering um, a, a terroir for champagne grapes in England. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but, and, but it's, what is and, it's, and it's halfway decent stuff. You know, what is it happens though to actual to to uh, champagne itself in France? 
Well, it'll, it'll, it'll continue, it'll continue, it'll continue on, and what will happen is they, the, the wine grower, the viticulturalists, and the farmers, and the winemakers will adapt. I mean, to climate change, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, they've, they've, they've adapted to a variety of different issues over the years. There's no question about that. I mean, one of the amazing things about French wines to me is that year after year after year, the first growth of Bordeaux and the first growth of Burgundy produce a wonderful wine, even if the, even if the terroir, I mean, even if the weather is really terrible. Ne- <laughs> nevertheless, they'll produce a hundred point wine. And, yeah, well, yeah. And the re- we can thank the critics for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, re- producing really, really super fine wine. I agree wines. with you, Jim. I mean, I, I, I just use the hundred points. Point scale just because well, it's, it's interesting. Someone was asking mantra. me recently if global warming is really having any impact on the world of wine. And I used your example, Anne, that uh, very much so. It's creating entire new wine regions like England, southern mm-hmm. England, uh, which, you know, 50 years ago was certainly not a place where you would be growing grapes in any quantity. It's certainly not for commercial production. Yeah. It's changing the character of long-established regions like the Mosul in Germany. Uh, The wines are those beautiful, (coughs) excuse me, those beautiful Rieslings are getting fatter and juicier and fruitier. Oh, absolutely. And you'll you'll see now the alcohol levels are starting to go up uh, with those wines. You know, it used to be that because they were picked, well, as late as they could stand to pick them in that very cold northern borderland of wine growing capability that uh, they left sugar in just to balance that incredible spiking acidity. Well, now with the increase in, in global temperatures, the acidity is not nearly as intense as it used to be, and so they don't need as much sugar to balance it out. So, you know, dry Riesling is becoming is much more of a thing in Germany than it used to be. Right. And people are... if, you talk to, if you talk to winemakers anywhere who, when they were kids, they remember, you know, particularly ones who obviously have grown up in the, in the industry, uh, when they were children, they remember that picking uh, grapes with their father or their grandparents, and they would be picking in October every year. Harvest was in October. Now, in many of those regions, uh, the harvest, instead of being in October, is in mid or early September, and in some cases, even in late August. Well, we, so, well, global we, warming is definitely being felt. I mean, we've been in places in Australia, and I think we had the same experience in Sicily. That they're, they're picking at night because it's too hot during the day, and, the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the vintage is starting in July. Yes, isn't or, that crazy? Or, or in in Australia in December. Mm-hmm. So, so something's happening. There's no question about that. Your book, yep. your book really goes into some corners that most people wouldn't expect this, such a book to go into, like um, how to do a tasting of dessert wines. I mean, honestly, I I really try, but I don't have a sweet tooth and I just can't stand them. Mm-hmm. So, so I, always well, get two, I always get two glasses. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's an upside to everything. See, that's the, that's the recipe for a happy couple. 
That's why you've been together for so many years. Now, now let's di- let's dive into s- something here that I think people who are not great wine expertise are, are going to wonder about if they're not doing it so already. White wine and red wine with fish and meat. Mm-hmm. G- g- give us, give us your you, you have the floor. I will not interrupt you. I will just allow you. Well, to I, I I think that. People have fallen back on an easy platitude that you should always drink red wine with meat, you should always drink white wine with fish. Uh, why? Because it's simple to remember and, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, the reality is that, that wine and food pairing is much more effectively approached when you look at intensity and weight. Uh, so if you're going to have a very light meal, have a very light wine to go with it. Because whatever color it is, if you're having, uh, let's say, some some lovely, uh, just lightly done scallops, and you bring in a big heavy wine, whether it's white or red, it's going to overpower the food and it's not going to be pleasing. Right. right uh, you know, and vice nice. versa. So there's nothing wrong with having a, uh, a lighter red, maybe a nice Beaujolais, even lightly chilled with some fish or with some scallops or something along those lines. Uh, and there's certainly nothing wrong with having a white wine with meat. I mean, some of these, you know, big, beautiful uh, uh, whites, uh, whether you're talking, well, one I'd like in particular is a Godello from, from Spain. Uh, you know, it has some body. It has some weight. Uh, and so if you've got some some food that is meat-focused, but it's, uh, say it's a pork, something like that, as opposed to a big beefy thing, it can go beautifully with that. So I think the first thing in food and wine pairing is to make sure that you like the wine. There's nothing worse than seeing someone pick a wine they don't really like because they read some expert saying that this was the perfect pairing. Right. <laughs> you know, Forget about the expert's palate. You know, it's your palate that counts. Right. I mean, so you've, you've got to remember that the critics in particular are paid to criticize. That's what they do. And uh, you wouldn't give up your own taste buds for anything else. So why would you give it up for wine? Yeah, no, it, it, seemed, know, it seemed to... Yeah, for instance, you said you were going to have chicken and you were going to have uh, broccoli and cauliflower with it. And I said, oh, my goodness, Anne, how silly of you. You're going to have cauliflower with that? Oh, no, you should have peas. Peas are the thing you want to have with that, not cauliflower. I mean, you would think I was crazy. But but in essence, we let the wine critics do that to us with our choice of wine. No kidding. Uh, You're you're absolutely right. I tell you, here's here's our safety zone. If, If we're not sure and it looks like a white... Sancerre, and, and if it looks like a red Pinot Noir, <laughs> there you go. It's, it's, well, ta- it's taken us a very long way together. <laughs> well, uh, you know, referring back to your earlier comment, Peter, uh, about the artichokes and asparagus, uh, I think Sauvignon Blanc is a wonderful match for those. Mm-hmm. So there's your Sancerre. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Now you've got some. Interesting among your fifty ways, some really interesting things like go to a vineyard. 
Yes. <laughs> really, really interesting places to go. Besides, they have the thing we really like. They have <laughs> wine there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the other thing is, well, two things. One is it, it's surprising how many people who enjoy wine have really never been to a vineyard or a winery. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they always thought maybe they live in western Pennsylvania. And they always thought, for instance, that going to a vineyard or a winery meant they either had to go to the Finger Lakes or out to California, <laughs> to Napa. No, what, what? And they didn't realize that within spitting distance throughout Ohio and, and along the Great Lakes, and, and you know, you can tell me where, there are really very good wines being made that are just a short drive away. I, so, I, I really it, was intrigued it, by the by the Norton grape in Missouri. Yes, I mean I didn't. Norton is actually very good. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what we found. It, it, yeah, it, it's quite a lovely grape. It really is, and uh, you know, there's there's wine made in every state in the union. So wherever you live, you can get to a winery now. In some cases, it may not be the world's greatest winery, but it's going to be a very educational and enlightening experience anyway, because instead of just reading about how wine is made, you're going to be able to experience it. You're going to be able to talk to the winemaker. You know, you're going to get a personal explanation. You're going to smell the grapes and the fermentation. So, you know, I mean, I've been in hundreds of wineries, and I still get a little rush every time I go into a new one. You know, in in essence, these are kind of like studios where craftspeople do their work. And, and uh, the, there's a wonderful energy in a winery. So I would encourage everyone to visit a winery. Now, there, there, are, some, there are also some great people involved. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's one, was one winery that's close, it's close to uh, Greystone, which used to be the mm-hmm. Swiss... Swiss the American Swiss colony or whatever it was called, just across the right. street. And the, the, the owner was a Frenchman and he, he had heart problems, I think. So, so he decided that a certain percentage of the proceeds of all the wine that he made would go into research on heart conditions. Marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous. Oh, the, yep. the wine world's filled with stories like that. Well, to get a handle on more about um, those kinds of stories and what to make your whole experience with wine better, uh, check out Jim Lochran's book, and he is a certified wine expert, by the way, uh, Adventures in Wine Appreciation, the title, 50 Ways to Love Wine More. And one more comment is I think the graphics that you're pulling in this book are wonderful. Thank you. And th- thank you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your knowledge. We already feel more educated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, and uh, I, I wish you both lots of good drinking. Thank, thank you so you, much, Jim. Jim. Welcome back. Um, next up, we've got Jason Gorski, who's going to be talking to us about the Washington's Delisle Cellars and their 25th vintage of D2. On the second annual D2 Day. Do you want now, to talk about that? What, what we're doing here is we're, at, we're actually doing something that Jim highly recommends, except we couldn't do it on person, in person on this particular case. But he says, by all means, go to wineries. Talk to winemakers. That's included in the advice that he, that he has in his book. 
and uh, we've certainly done that plenty of times, and this was this was no exception, uh, because it really it really is an interesting wine region out of most people's way in the coastal ranges and beyond the coastal ranges of the state of Washington, which is some of the some of the uh, most improved and continuing to improve wines available in these United States. So here's what's his name. Jason, right? Jason Gorsuch. Jason Gorsuch. Gorsuch. Okay, listeners, are you ready for another wine story? <laughs> it's it's called College Wrestler Makes Good. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely part of my story. But. Jason Gorsky just told us part of his story. Why don't you give us the abbreviated version? Um, well, I, I grew up in a, uh, a family of, of beer and, and whiskey drinkers. It wasn't until later in life, uh, around just as I was starting college, that I was introduced to the benefits of wine at the dinner table, and that's really what got me uh, interested in the uh, in the industry. And by the time I graduated from college, I decided to jump in head first, and I haven't looked back. I've been making wine for uh, almost eighteen years now. Wow, no, that's amazing. Now, so so we'll come back to your story, but the the story of Dr. Wines. No, DR is the name of one of their wines. Oh, That's yeah. the one we drank the other day. Well, but it's Delil. Is but the de- yeah, it's yeah, the pronunciation trips many people. And, and why, why is it, I mean, the, the founders weren't called Delil. How did you do that? Um, it was actually a sort of ancestral name of the Lil family. Oh, um, okay, so we just read. Okay. Uh, made it, uh, which is L-I-L-L, we just put the, the D-E and uh, the, the E on the end there. But we, we try to pronounce it a little bit less French just because uh more approachable to people when they, they walk up, although we, we get plenty of confusion. The, a lot of people want to pronounce it with a more French accent, that's for sure. But, but who, was, who was the mad founder who decided to start making Bordeaux blends in the state of Washington, which has only been known for grapes for probably about the last 20 years? Yeah, so the, the original uh, partnership that founded it was the Lil family, who provided uh, basically the land and the capital. Um, Jay Soloff, who was uh, a sommelier, and so he brought the, the sales side. And the founding winemaker, Chris Upchurch, who basically had been a, uh, an amateur winemaker for quite a while. And they all got together. They, they started as friends and then started the business. And for Chris, you know, uh, credit where credit's due, everyone at the time was really doing single, generally single varietals, and he was just a love, uh, a lover of, of Bordeaux blends, and uh, that's where that's how the the, the winery was found. It was he's, to, um, was really with Bordeaux blends. He's a he's a little bit like Tom Jordan of, of Jordan Vineyards, who who fell in love with Bordeaux blends when he was entertaining his clients around the world, and then he came back and said, "I think we could grow." Bordeaux grapes here. Yeah, and, and you know, Chris tells stories of, of uh, going and tasting people's single varietal wines, you know, in California, et cetera, and uh, kind of uh, afraid he might have been offending people because he was just fascinated. He would grab, you know, his glass of Cabernet and his glass of Merlot and blend oh, no. the two together, you know. Just to <laughs> <laughs> that would get them that bad. <laughs> he, he would put them in a glass and stir them up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just what does this do? I mean, I find myself doing the same thing. I actually uh, was at Ken Wright uh, about eight, nine years ago and uh, two single vineyard Pinots and I found myself, you know, I looked at my friend who's also a Washington winemaker and we both looked at each other and said, you know, these are both great but 
don't you kind of want to put them in the same glass right now? <laughs> which is uh, you know, sacrilegious yeah, when it comes right, to the world right. of Pino, for sure. Now, now, now which, which of the top Bordeaux houses leads with Merlot like you do? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't really think that we don't definitely don't think of ourselves as um, as uh, contemporaries of Bordeaux. I think we sort of took the the concept of of blending Bordeaux varietals uh-huh. and okay. and brought it brought it to Washington State. So we, you know, although we Chris has plenty of anecdotes about going to Bordeaux and, and loving the wines of Bordeaux, it's not really about trying to make. Uh, you know, uh, in, in the same style of, of uh, any particular house. No, I was, just, I was just trying to put a little little hook in there. As to yeah. Who was Rob? Was it? Wasn't it? Uh, who was the guy who named you the the Lafitte of Washington State? Oh yes, I was, it was actually Robert Parker, Robert Parker back in back in the first uh, oh. five years or so huh? of the winery he visited and uh, and and described us as the Lafitte Rothschild of. of of Washington State, which is very high praise, and wow, I'm not sure I would, I would, I would say that myself, but uh, you know, Robert can, I guess. It's a, it's a pretty neat compliment. Now, now, help our listeners who who know their geography of the Pacific Northwest, but don't necessarily know its winemaking regions. What, what's your viticulture region? So our viticultural region is um, is the Columbia Valley, okay. which is actually rather large. So basically, oh, yeah. we're, we're located in Woodville, which is only about a couple miles uh, um, east of Seattle. But most of the all the vineyards, really, um, of the Columbia Valley are are east uh, of, of the mountain range. So we actually have a high high desert about you know basically the Yakima Valley is about you know 150 miles away. So um, the although customers certainly live in the Seattle area. Um, we we had the opportunity again with the as I described earlier with the the property to actually build the winery here. At the time there, we were the third bonded winery in Winville, or in um, yeah in, in the Winville area. It's already getting beginning to get some um, some people coming to visit Chateau Saint Michel in Columbia. And there was one or two other. I think we were fifth actually. Um, we're uh, third oldest, I guess, in Winville is the best way to describe that. So yeah, we're definitely as an industry very very young. You know, probably sixty or sixty years or or so younger than than California. No, you an, you an, you answered my next question without realizing you were answering it, because yep. you you your yours would not be classed as state wines. You, you buy the grapes from growers spread across, do. I, spread across that region. The, exactly, uh, we we tend to focus mostly in the Yakima Valley. Um, our largest cuvées, including our our sort of most widely distributed is our, our, our cuvee we call D2, and it's actually Columbia Valley. And that's mostly, we, we source a little bit of Merlot that's just outside the Yakima Valley and a little bit of Cabernet that's just outside of the Yakima Valley. Okay. So Yakima Valley is a much smaller valley within the Columbia Valley at AVA. Are you anywhere near Walla Walla? Uh, we, we dabbled with Walla Walla. Okay. actually okay. currently do not source any fruit from, from you know, that area. You know, you know, my, my, pre, my previous winery, I, I, I was at an estate vineyard there. Uh, we do have an estate vineyard on Red Mountain, which is oh, a you do. Okay, tiny, tiny AVA within the Yakima Valley. So, so you've got a, a range of wines, D, D, D2 being the one that you're featuring, I guess, almost this very day because it's the 25th anniversary of the first vintage of DR. And I, I, I was intrigued as to why, why DR. It sounds like what the doctor ordered, but I'm sure that's not what it was really. 
Yeah, the the origin story is basically the original the original harvest was Eagle Park's Cabernet and Merlot with a little bit of Cabernet Franc, and the goal was to make the best cuvee we could. Um, and I always say we, even though I was about twelve when the first wine was made, but uh, the best cuvee was our, our Chalure State, and it happened to be Cabernet dominant with Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Um, and you're still uh, counterparts. You're still making it. A handful, and we still a make that wine as well, yeah. Of, of other wines. Go, just go through them on a the list just so people can oh. make a note if they're interested. <laughs> we make uh, 16 to 18 wines every year. Oh, wow. So over the, oh, yeah, over the, case, over the course of, of 25 years, we started with Chalor, and then D2 was the, the Duzium. So, again, equal parts Cab and Merlot, so it just happened to be a Merlot-dominated blend for D2. Um, and that's that's the wine that's sort of grown the most over 25 years. But then what we started to do was basically start working with vineyards or sites that we were interested in. And so now, um, besides D2 we, and, and Chalor, the original ones, we picked up um, an older fine vineyard, uh, some of the oldest cabernet in the state, which is called Harrison Hill. So Snipes Mountain, which okay. is another tiny ABA in, in the Yakima Valley. And we, we bought all the best wine we can from that particular vineyard. Um, a separate cuvee uh, called Harrison Hill. Um, I'm, you know, the, the, about the same time we branched into Bordeaux Blanc, we started making a Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon blend that we called uh, after our original red Chalure State. We now call the uh, the white the Chalure Blanc. That's, um, that's, similar then, to, that's similar to a Hunter Valley white wine, right? Uh, from similar. From we use Semillon, Semillon Blanc in the lead, though. And so we, and, and heavily oak influenced, uh, oh, okay, we stir the leaves, et cetera, yeah. So, so definitely more, I would say older school Bordeaux, uh, less, less than the, like, sweeter, less oak influenced versions that are, uh, unfortunately all over the place now for Bordeaux. Um, and then, uh, probably late 90s, we branched off into Syrah. So we do a single, oh, yeah, okay. our, our state vineyard Syrah. Um, we do a Yakima, Yakima Valley or Columbia Valley, um, uh, Yakima Valley Syrah. Um, we do a blend of Grenache, Mouvet, and Syrah that we call our Metier. Ooh, that sounds um, good. Yeah, do some single branched into malt backs long, long after I, I started my um, my time here at DeLille. Um, now we have actually all five uh, Bordeaux varietals in, in D2 for the first time for the 25th vintage. So, um, Sort of in that style of where the D2 started as a museum, a place to put, you know, that which didn't make higher cuvées. Um, now when, when we go and find a new vineyard or, or fruit that we, we quite frankly want to play with or try to make the best wine we can, um, it always has to work with all the other wines because we basically blend everything. You know, the, even a single, I would say even a single vineyard, single varietal wines that we make, I tend to put a lot of variance in how we ferment it and even Beyond that, a lot of times the cooperage is, we actually will barrel select for those uh, very high-end single vineyard cuvées. So if there's 40 barrels, we pick the best 10 and that kind of thing. Now, let's, um, now let's, let's move on to something you can celebrate, listeners. Uh, we, we celebrated already, thanks to one of Jason's colleagues who sent us two bottles of D2 2016 vintage, which is officially releasing the day after tomorrow. Uh, yes. but, but, but we had we had our very first D2 drink day yesterday. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was a little early, but uh, but uh, in the same spirit, I hope. Well, we wanted to make sure before we talk to you that it was good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, no, thank you, Jason. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, 
It went, it, went, it went beautifully with the New York strip steak. Absolutely. Oh, I thought it was a ribeye. That was a strip steak. Oh, uh, well, I stand corrected. So, well, I'm not trying to correct you. That's just what, that's just what we had. I don't, want, I don't want to mislead Jason and send him down a ribeye when he should really be having a, a strip steak <laughs> with, his, with his D2. But what, what happens on D2 drink day that people who didn't have any yet but are gonna, obviously going to get some after we've... Yeah, well, that's so... We, we have grown the, the winery and D2 specifically very organically over the years. It was always the wine that you sort of drink while, while Chalure comes of age. It's the way we have always described it. It's always supposed to be very high value, but also very high quality for the price. And now, uh, you know, over the years, basically the wine would sell out. We would not have D2 available for months at a time. And um, it's still sort of that way. Although we have increased production, it's sort of a celebration of uh, uh, a new a new year in in a way maybe a, a month early but on that release day it used to be I mean when I got here eight years ago every employee would put D two in their car and drive it to customers restaurants wine shops etc people would flock to us to come pick it up to celebrate and so what we really wanted to do was to create our own sort of you know drink two day D two day the goal was that you know you can celebrate this wine wherever you are. And then it's no longer just uh, you know here in our local area or within Washington State. Well, now let, let's let's suppose then that, that people realize obviously that that the 25th vintage is 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 out is out and about, and they and they miss the opportunity to simulate their own uh, D2 drink day. How, how do people get some across the country? Do you have well, a, do you have uh, a wine club? Or way is yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're distributed in, in 48 states. I actually don't know the two that are excluded, probably, um, just because of some archaic alcohol laws. But you can just go to our website. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we actually know what, I mean, I've worked with, I've worked with, uh, uh, I, I, I believe we're cleared by the state to be in Pennsylvania. I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that we can, we can sell at your, your state stores. Um, our, our website's the easiest way at, you know, the, DeLilleSellers.com, D-E-L-I-L-L-E-C-E-L-L-A-R-S.com, all one word. And uh, on that website, you can actually, there's a, uh, you can you can search by your zip code. It'll let you know if there are, a, if there's a wine shop nearby that you can, no matter where you are in the country, that, um, that has our wine. And you can always go to your local local store and ask, ask for us by name. Uh, we can sell, if we can sell directly to you, by our website, we you know we are happy to do so as well. Do you, do you have a wine wine club? We do. Um, okay. It's it's actually it's it's beginning to expand its borders beyond uh, Woodville. We have a we have a lot of wonderful longtime customers, and some of which have been with with Delil for the entire twenty five year history. Um, but we are starting to um, as we grow as a as a winery, um, starting to get some some. Um, appeal from for for people much far re- more far reaching. Well, it's it's been fascinating to talk to you and to get the, the backstory of uh, a uh, not not well known in our part of the world, but obviously yeah. a very very fine winery and uh, an excellent wine to go with red meat, to go with duck probably. To go with oh, turkey. I drink red tur- wine with everything. Tur- turkey, turkey with with turkey for for New Year's or. Christmas. Why not? But I think that's sort of the story of Washington State. If uh, you know, I moved when I moved here 15 years ago to make wine. I thought it was you know a pioneer in in many ways, and that the world was about to know about 
how wonderful the quality and, quite, value, quite frankly, the value of Washington State. And I still feel like there's uh, that the word is still getting out there. So um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at how long it's taken, but I think for, for those that know, um, realize that Washington State can, can really deliver um, at all price points, honestly. And, and the, how diverse and how wide the Columbia Valley is, you get everything from world-class Riesling to world-class Cabernet. Which is, you know, that's a in terms of how much heat those individual varieties need. It's it's massively different, but um, you know, the state's large, and uh, the, the eastern Washington desert, deserts are, are are large and varied, and we have access to good water and can grow uh, can grow grapes all over. Yeah, and Jason, you do a good job. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 and the Columbia River, she is big and wide. And yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's what sets us apart, really. We have a, a, a huge amount of unplanted and, and very high-quality land for wine grapes, and which differs from Napa Valley. Napa Valley is fairly planted out, and then beyond that, Washington State has that, uh, better access to water. Now, eventually, I'm sure that will change, and we try to be very mindful about conservation, but, you know, there, there, the sky's the limit for Washington State, really, at this point, it's really just up to... Uh, up to us as as wine producers and the wine growers that are here in the state to let the basically let the world know that um, you know we we are uh, emerging or have been <laughs> have been for for forty to sixty years I guess but it's time it's time that the world knows um, mm-hmm. and I, I love I love it here so I, I don't know that I would yeah my husband always Peter's always wanted to live there I just don't like the climate very much yeah I could take yeah. it a, I could take it a Walla Walla you think you'd reach the end of the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it does feel that way. I, I was I lived there for about four years. Uh, last last winery I was with, um, and I always say, well, well, it's a beautiful place to visit, but it was uh, it does feel a little bit isolated when you live there full time. You know, so many good friends there. You know Charles Smith, undoubtedly, right? Well, I know of Charles Smith. You I doubt of Charles him. knows you. Wild guy, he's <laughs> absolutely wild guy. Absolutely, he started. Absolutely. He started all over again. You know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. He does it. Yep, he's he's an incredible marketer. I, I know his winemaker well. Uh, he was actually the winemaker at Chateau Saint Michel when I there first moved to Washington right. back in in '04. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we run into each other pretty frequently. He he he, to, he told us once. He said he said I, I know I'm getting a visit when there's a yellow Ferrari parked outside my house. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's Gary it's Gary Figgins come to pick out some to pick up some grapes. <laughs> oh boy! Well, great talking to you. Leonetti Sellers is is uh, is his his winery, and yep. uh, it's it's on all his wines are on allocation, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and they're another brand that's grown. It's interesting. Washington State has changed so so much over the time. I mean, you know, Charles was making it with with Christoph back in the day yeah, of okay. Cayuse, and then it kind of kind of grew from there. And Leonetti, although they make more wine now, yeah, it's absolutely the, the same. It's very difficult to get. Colcita Creek; those are the the old mainstays for Washington State, and I think you know we we at the little try to uh, we'll consider ourselves in that in that same vein. Well, I hope we're, I hope we're helping to tell your story to the rest of the country and the rest of the world for that matter and uh, we wish you well in your future thank you very much more and more delicious wines and I, I hope we'll get some more in due course thank you so much thank you and what do we say Bo- bottoms up or cheers I forget which <laughs> yeah, either one <laughs> cheers works for me okay thank you Jason yeah, thank you alright podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station www.aspstation.net
we're going to take a little slight detour here and switch over to beer. I like this book as it came with not only the book itself and a lot of great tips, but with a church key. <laughs> It'd be embedded in the cover. Yeah, well, I loved that. It was so cute. So anyhow, it's Ben Robinson. He so, knows so, so, what he's talking about. It's so cute. We gave it to one of our nephews, that, <laughs> yeah. who's, who's a great beer lover. So we presented him with yet another church key for Christmas. Yes. So the book is Beer Hacks, and it's Ben Robinson. And there's some really clever little hacks in this book. Well, I started, I had 10 million things to do this morning, and Hood, <laughs> but I, I decided, since I, you were available for an interview, that I would read your book, and I did. I read it cover to cover. Oh, goodness. Which I don't do for every book. <laughs> I mean, I well, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't do six a week, which is what we usually have. Anyhow, your, your book is called Kitchen Yarns, which really kind of sums it up nicely. Um, Sounds like a sewing book to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she knits. She knits. That's right. They wanted my knitters to to notice my book. (laughs) Yeah. See, that's the one thing we don't have in common here is uh, knitting. I I tried. I just absolutely can't stand it. (laughs) Oh, really? I have to tell you, I'm, of course, getting ready to knit Christmas presents. I waited long enough. Yes. And as soon as the interview's over, I've got to get all my needles out and get to work. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I was supposed to be doing is, because I'm also a metalsmith, I was going to be making my sister or my, my nephew's wife's earrings for Christmas. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> wow, so, that's terrific. Yeah. So anyhow, your subtitle is Notes on Life, Love, and Food. And um, it's a story... Um, a, an episode in your life it's really about an emotion and then it's followed with a recipe. Yes, um, that's right. So, I mean, I don't want to give away everything or people won't buy the book. <laughs> 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 but, but I have some interesting questions. Um, did you think of the incident, the emotion first and then the recipe or was it the other way around? That's such a good question. You know, I, in a way, it's neither because I had not realized that over many years I wrote a lot of personal essays using food as sort of the entry point to a larger theme. And it wasn't until I won a couple Best American Food Writing Awards that my brilliant editor pointed oh. out to me <laughs> how often I wrote about food. And right. I swear you could have knocked me over. And I said, you know, I think you're right. And she said, you collect all those essays, and I'll publish them. So uh-huh. I quickly went home to my computer. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked, and, and so in their original form, some of them did run with recipes. But some of them had not, you know. Um, and so then I had some fun. Like there's one about uh, that compares a dinner party I went to uh, as a way to remember my TWA flight attendant days and the food oh, yeah. I used to I cook. I read that, yeah. So I had none of those recipes, so it was fun to kind of find a recipe for Cherry's Jubilee and read about it. And um, But other ones, the re- the recipe was so important to the essay. I'm thinking of the one called Tomato Pie oh, that yes. references a Lori Colwin, right. a love of Lori Colwin's writing and a recipe of hers from Gourmet Magazine. So it was kind of a mix. But the essays themselves were born just of my desire to try to tackle some emotional piece 
Well, you've uh, had, a, you, had a lot of sadness in your life and loss. Unfortunately, that is true. I think um, maybe we all have our share, but I certainly started my share early. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kept going, right? Yes. Um, and, of course, food is such a way to comfort the grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of the essays kind of were born during these periods in my life when I um, I really looked for food or people fed me uh, to help me through something tough. Right. Well, we, we share so many experiences. Um, and I grew up in, in a, a Sicilian family, so it's... Oh, boy. <laughs> it, wow. It might have been even wilder than yours. <laughs> uh, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Peter is, is English. And mm-hmm. nobody raises voice in his family. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because my dad was English. Well, he was Midwestern, but, you know, they were just, you know, that English combination that many people are in the Midwest. And, uh, yeah, he somehow I, landed in the middle of this Neapolitan family. This is the other thing is, um, the, I mean, here I am. You should see the, the family photographs. There were all these blue-eyed blondes, and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Adam, our son Adam, who's dark as well. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, but um, and I also I I know that I I worked in at uh, the museum in Indianapolis for oh three to four you. years. Yeah. So you know that Indiana Fried Chicken? Oh yeah, <laughs> the best. It's the best. Uh, in, in a review in the Washington Post, it started. She had me at Indiana Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh dear, that was the that reminds me of my opening line of the interview I did with Gail Green when she did her memoir. Yes, I, I, somebody in, in, reviewed her book and said, "I'll have what she's having." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I, you know, I was a, a restaurant critic for years, and I never, <laughs> I never had any of those adventures. <laughs> right, Robert? Am I hey, talking well, too much? <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never. You, you didn't I, sleep with Elvis Presley either, or Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that's her opening. Um, her opening. Um, right, that's right. I remember yeah. that book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I have to say that um, my darling husband thinks he makes the best fried chicken, uh-huh. and you know, it's you know a genius recipe on Food Fifty Two, and he always talks about his. He grinds it. He does everything to that chicken but marry it, you know. And I uh, I say, you, you're working too hard. This is how they do it in Indiana. So I have to sometimes take him for some good fried chicken, so then he'll know. Oh, that's funny. You have to take him to Nashville for some of that hot chicken. Yeah, oh, isn't that good? We have a restaurant here in Providence that serves that. So are you living in Providence, not in, in Manhattan, right? You know, we split our time actually, so um, okay. we're about. It's about fifty-fifty. I live on the west side of Providence and the West Village in New York. Okay, well there, there you go. Um, so that's Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, Providence, Rhode Island. And Annabelle is still young. Yeah, Annabelle is fourteen now, and she is a freshman in high school. Okay, and uh, is loving it, and just made the honor roll. I'll say hashtag. Proud mom. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so she's, um, when she's with her dad, that's when I'm in New York. I see. Okay. Um, I should point out that uh, 
uh, this is actually something that's been happening a lot with memoirs. We're getting, they're not in chronological order, so it takes a right. little adjusting to, to do. But um, actually, it's, it's easier adjusting to to your non-chronological order than um, these other people, because we knew them really well, so it made it a little mm-hmm. bit difficult. Um, you start with something that, I mean, it's, it really dates you. <laughs> <It could not. laughs> I mean, oh boy! <laughs> I, I I remember the silver pallet cookbook very well. <laughs> I'm, wondering, I'm wondering what Anne's going to say next. <laughs> so you know, I I find that so many things that I say now are, um, you know, the former airline TWA, the former. The, oh sure, because it's all yeah. gone, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So I date myself all the time, but uh, I. Still use that silver palette cookbook. Yeah, you know it's it's funny because we had uh, when did Sheila die? I mean, we had we uh, had a, that was a few years ago. Yeah, well, we had um, an interview scheduled with her. Oh, really? Yeah. You see the one whose husband called? No, him? no, no. That was the the um, oh, oh, what okay. is that one called? No, the the one the you know the culinary dictionary or whatever it is called. I forget mm. what it is. A woman wrote it for years and years. And, um, and we had a schedule. We had her scheduled for an interview, and her husband called and said he's sorry to report that she won't make the interview because she died. I mean, oh, <laughs> my goodness. And I thought that was the most peculiar thing. Why would he ever <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> do that? Wow. So, so it's a really thoughtless way to get out of doing an interview. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Sheila, um, it was, I think her publicist first wrote and said that uh, she had to change the date. Because she was in the hospital, and then, and then the next thing she called and canceled and said Sheila had died. I was totally oh stunned. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you, they really changed the way people ate and cooked. Oh yes. For that time, you know. Um, oh yes. But someone has someone who read the book emailed me to say that the Barefoot Contessa, and oh, I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce his name, but the. The chef who wrote the cookbook Jerusalem. Um, oh yeah, what's his name? I can't. Adamo, I don't know how to say it. Yeah, but they I, I, both have Solomon. versions of chicken marbella no. in their new cookbooks. Really? You're Isn't talking that about Otto. What's his name? The guy in, in London. You're yes. Talking? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what they both have name? updated Otto, that chicken Otto, marbella. Otto Longhi or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Otto. Yeah, that's he, right. Otto. Somebody Otto Longhi. He he has journalists. <laughs> So. He, he's, I would never interview him. He's just, you know, he, you know, we got the books and then he won't do the interview. It's really strange. Oh, that's so. too bad. Well, I've eaten twice at his restaurant in London called Nopi yeah. and with great delight. So <laughs> we have to forgive him. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I think he's extraordinary. Absolutely. So I, I looked up the essay, I mean, the uh, recipe that he he updated for the chicken marbella and it, the only difference I could see was that he substituted dates for the prunes. Well, that's Middle Eastern, isn't it? Yes, right. Yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, the, the, this, this, everybody at this, at the time uh, started having these dinner parties, so you ate the same thing every time. <laughs> I know! <laughs> I know. So, so yeah, I, everybody had the same cookbook. Yeah, everybody had That's the same right. cookbook. It was the Bible, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was. And, and caterers started cooking from it. It was really bizarre. <laughs> so, 
anyhow, um, so that that struck a, a note. And and um, what else here? Well, of course, your, your fried chicken. You have great memories of, of your uh, parents. Your mother must yeah. have been a character too. Oh, was she ever? Uh, she just passed away in February, sadly. But until the end, she was, you know, um, still smoking cigarettes. She started when she was 15, so she smoked for something like 70 years. And she was okay. Yeah, yeah yes, she was okay. And uh, But she had that kind of throaty voice that comes when you've smoked that long. Yeah. And uh, she was irreverent, but also very kind. And just everybody loved her and gravitated toward her. Um, it was a, it was hard Thanksgiving. We moved it to my apartment, and we're going to do the same for Christmas. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, well, you, even you, you wrote that it was sad that she would not get to see this book published. So she didn't. Yes. Uh, did she know about it? Or? She knew I was doing it because I was bugging her for some recipes. Uh-huh. And of course, like many people of that generation and many immigrants, she never <laughs> wrote them down. You know, so. I would stand there, and she'd go to throw in some parsley, and I'd catch her hand and put it in a measuring cup. You know? <laughs> yeah, I did this with with my grandmother and with one of my grandmothers, and uh, I mean, I think she thought I was a little retarded. I kept asking, <laughs> "How much well, of this? Saying, how much of that?" You know, she said, "Well, until it feels right." You know, <laughs> exactly. And I would say to my mother, "Now, how long do you cook it?" She said, "Till it's done." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I can't put that in a recipe. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, dear. So, and, and um, it was interesting about the pies, your mother's pies, how yes. it was like a, um, a, a statement of, of independence from this, the, the, uh, the Italian background, huh? That's right, yeah. It, she. Um, my mother she also did, most, did pies. <laughs> is that right? Isn't that funny? But, now, my grandmother would do, like, fruit pies with fruit from our yard, like cherries from our tree or blueberries. Uh-huh. Um, but the lemon meringue in particular, my mother saw as quintessentially exactly. American, right. you know, and um, as sort of sophisticated, and she could make a meringue like nobody. She made the best meringues. And, of course, my brother and I used to steal the peaks when we'd walk by and we'd get in trouble because we'd ruin her beautiful creation. But <laughs> So, um, you know, you said your brother died in Pittsburgh? Yes, yes. That's where you are, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's where we are. Yeah. yeah, we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> now, what, what, I mean, was it a long time ago? Yeah. He died in 1982 when he was yeah, we were 30. Here. Were you? It's funny, I was talking to someone from Pittsburgh the other day, and um, it was really weird because I was trying to figure out what neighborhood my brother lived in, because I just don't remember. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was, at the time it seemed kind of rural, and it was up high. You could see, you know, the city kind of below it, Um, and the house was pretty new. Not Washington? Um, I just don't know. Oh, I think okay. that might be what this guy said, too. But what was funny is I described the last time I saw him, which was in Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And I said we went to this dinner um, over Memorial Day weekend, 1982, and it was at a restaurant that had been a bank. And this guy I'm talking to looks at me and said, I was there that weekend. Oh, no. My brother was the manager. Really? Isn't that crazy? That is. Which restaurant was that I'm trying to think? Uh, I don't know. It was in an old bank, and, like, they even had yeah. the vault was maybe, you know, you, it was open, and you could sit, like, deep into the vault. Um, 
It sounds familiar, but I've been to so many of those bang yeah. restaurants. Yeah. Was it a, of course. Was it a seafood restaurant? I don't remember it as being a seafood. Okay. It was one of those classic early 80s restaurants that tried too hard. Yeah, <laughs> Pittsburgh was, okay. was loaded with those. The scene's <laughs> much better now, but it used to be loaded with those restaurants. Yeah, yeah it was that kind. You know what I mean. Yeah. Listen, I, I mean, all credit due, Anne Hood, I cannot believe that even the most elementary novice <laughs> would ever try to make pesto with dried, with dried basil. <laughs> I mean, I cannot <laughs> Oh my goodness, I'm so impressed by that. And of course, <laughs> I grew up in a family where we had herbs and stuff, but I was never allowed in the kitchen. I, I couldn't have told you what was in our meatballs. I had no idea yeah. uh, or anything. And I remember getting uh, that recipe, and it said two cups of basil. And I remember thinking, that's a lot, because I only <laughs> used the dry, you know? And um, I said, okay. And I think I bought like the giant container of that McCormick dry. Oh, jeez, yes. And, you know, kudos to my boyfriend at the time who ate that horrible food and um, with his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth and then so sweetly suggested maybe you could use fresh basil next time. And, of course, a little, like, lightning bolt where I ever thought, of course that's what they did. Well, you know, I mean, I didn't... Uh, I didn't learn to cook until I went away to a school. Um, yes. And, um, yeah, and, but I invited a, a professor of mine for lunch, and I made one of the few things I thought that I had mastered, which was lentil soup. Okay. So, and, and I served it to him, and I took one bite of it, and I realized I must have dumped the whole salt container in the <laughs> And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, so salty. He said, oh, my dear, don't worry about me. I was raised during the Depression. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God bless him. (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, you you have all these stories about um, your children's eating habits. Annabelle, I guess, was the the worst, right? (laughs) Oh, boy. She still is. I swear to you this morning. My husband said to me, I need to make French fries. He's doing a new cookbook. What will Annabelle eat with French fries? (laughs) And I said, well, she won't eat the fries. We can take it from there. Yeah. She's getting a little bit better because every now and then she completely surprises me. We were in Ireland last year, and the two of us went to lunch. And she, the the waitress came over, and Annabelle said, I'll have the muscles. And I said, you will. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So it just every now and then she's inspired, I guess. Well, you know, Ruth Reichel's son would only eat white food for a long time. How funny is that? Yeah, but um, rice is white, of course, so that uh, sushi seemed to be okay. Certain kinds oh, of sushi. Oh, funny, yes. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, our grandchildren uh, were like this, but I'll tell you, they're, um, they're coming around. They really are. And yeah. uh, my my our son, um, when he was in four year old preschool, his teacher had to call me to tell me that they they did this your favorite food thing with the class, and after all the PB and Js and whatnot, Adam says he, his favorite food was whole steamed artichokes with escargot <laughs> sauce. <laughs> A monster created. <laughs> but, but no, your your son is an actor, huh? Yes, he 
guess he uh, is good, huh? Yeah, he's in, lives in New York City and in Brooklyn, like they all do now. Yeah, and, nobody, uh, no New Yorkers live in Brooklyn. I decided. <laughs> I know exactly, but he um, a play that he wrote is actually being performed off Broadway this weekend. So it's a little different because typically he's in the show, but this is one that he wrote. It's a one act play that takes place during World War One. Really. Yeah, and it's at the Here Theater uh, with a one-weekend run, so we're really excited. So we'll be going there Saturday to see that. Uh, but typically he's on the other side, on the stage. He he was in a play for about two years called The Diana Tapes about Princess Diana. Oh, right. And it was in London this summer, and when it closed there, it was time to kind of end the show, you know. But it had it was great to see all the renditions of it and how it grew and changed and, of course, you know, to, to cheer him on. Uh-huh. Well, well so, um, he's a good cook, too. Um, yeah, you, you said so. That's good. Yeah. He's from an early age. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, I don't want to give away too much of this. I mean, it's really a memoir tied to emotional ups and downs, of which you've had plenty, including probably the toughest is uh, the, the loss of your daughter, I think. Yes. Which you, in your last chapter... Uh, refer to this as an ongoing grief, but you sort of uh, attach foods to all of these emotions in your life. Yeah. And, and I think people can relate to that. You know, I, I always love the quote by MFK Fisher where she said, I, I never wrote about food, I wrote about love. Uh-huh. And I feel like that's what happens when you use food as a portal into emotion. You know, it brings out the whole emotional spectrum, but ultimately... It nourishes us, right, and uh, pleases us, and uh, it's just like love in that way. Well, I think it's a delightful book. Again, it's Anne Hood's Kitchen Yarns, um, which is a, a du bon tendre, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> you've knitted together a wonderful book um, between your emotions <laughs> and your experience in life. So, um, And food, I meant and uh, thank, thank you. you for talking to us, and much success with your book. Thank you so much, Anne and Peter. It was great talking to you. You too. Okay, ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Well, I guess that wraps for another week, huh? Yeah, it does, it does. hope everybody's enjoying 2019. Yeah. It's an odd number, isn't it? It sure is. It's a, it's a, it's Two, it sounds zero, peculiar. one is three, and nine is 12. And what color is it, dear? Yeah, <laughs> um, and and as a special complaint, as a, as a <laughs> with, yeah. with colours and numbers, but she, but she does like a glass of wine. She does like a glass of um, amaro. She does like a glass of anything except beer. Probably no, no beer. Yeah, no no beer. What, what can you do? Yeah, so, no. some people have, some people have no taste. What can right. I tell you? But we all have taste, and you do too. So bring your fine taste back next week, same time, same place, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.